Lesson Nine of the Elements of Entomology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. The Elements of Entomology by William Ruskinberger. Lesson Nine. The Fourth Branch of the Animal Kingdom. Zoophytes or Radiata. Zoophytes, Organization, Division. Class of Infusoria, Rotatoria. Class of Entozoa, Division, Filiaria. Ascarides, Tania. Class of Infusoria, Polygastrica. Class of Echinodermata, Sea Stars. Class of Acalepha, Medusa. Class of Polypi, Coral, Coral Reefs, Hydra, Sponges. Geographical Distribution of the Animal Kingdom. The animals placed in the fourth and last great division of the animal kingdom possess an organization much less complicated, and consequently much less perfect, than that of the creatures we have studied in the preceding parts of our series. In the higher animals the body always consists of two similar halves. All the external organs are arranged on each side of the middle line in pairs. Whenever there is an organ on one side, a similar one is found on the opposite side, and the superior and inferior surfaces of the body differ from each other. In zoophytes, on the contrary, this symmetry is seldom found. In general, the different organs are placed around the axis or center of the body so as to give it a radiated form. Sometimes this arrangement is carried so far that the animal resembles a star, and in a great many of these creatures the body resembles an expanded flower. Many of them live fixed at the bottom of the sea, and united to each other in such a manner as to wear the appearance of branching shrubs. And this external analogy to certain plants is so great that for a long time these animals were confounded with marine plants, and even now that we know how much their structure, as well as their functions, differ from those of vegetables, we cannot assign to them a more appropriate name than zoophytes, from the Greek zoon, animal, and phuton, plant, or plant animals. In these animals the nervous system is entirely wanting, or is found in an extremely rudimentary state. They have no special organs of the senses, except perhaps their tentacles, which may serve them for the sense of touch. Most zoophytes are also destitute of blood vessels, and they have no special organs of respiration, this function being performed by the whole surface of the body. Some of them have a mouth armed with teeth, a digestive canal and anus, but in others the digestive cavity has a single opening, which serves at the same time both for mouth and anus. This branch of the animal kingdom is divided into six classes, namely, Infusoria, Rotatoria, Entozoa, Infusoria, Polygastrica, Echinodermata, Acalepha, and Polypi. Class of Infusoria, Rotatoria. These creatures are so extremely small that prior to the discovery of the microscope their existence was not even suspected, and yet their structure appears to be as complicated as any other animal of the same branch. Although the instruments by means of which they were observed, caused them to appear to be two or three hundred times larger than they really are, 
no distinct organ was discovered in them, and for a long time they were regarded as creatures composed of a kind of animated jelly only, which lived by imbibition. But the researches of some modern naturalists, especially Professor Ehrenberg of Berlin, have shown how much we were mistaken in regard to these animalcules. And we are astonished, not by the simplicity of their structure, but by the complicated microscopic organization. These animalcules are found in stagnant waters, and also in water in which animal substances have been soaked. Their body is partially transparent, and frequently presents traces of annular divisions. The mouth occupies its anterior extremity, and on each side, or around it, are seen the vibratory ciliae, the rotatory movements of which are very remarkable. The mouth is furnished with powerful muscles and lateral jaws. The digestive canal extends from one end of the body to the other, and ordinarily has an enlargement near the middle, which constitutes the stomach. On each side of this tube are frequently seen bodies of a glandular appearance, and at its posterior extremity a sort of cloaca into which the oviducts empty. Class of Entozoa This division comprises intestinal worms and other inferior animals of similar organization. Intestinal worms bear a closer resemblance to anilidins than to ordinary radiate animals. The body is elongated and composed of more or less distinct rings. There is often a digestive canal, sometimes vessels, but never a distinct circulation or special organs of respiration. Most of these singular creatures can live only in the bodies of other animals, and lodge themselves in the substance of the liver, in the eyes, in the cellular tissue, in the muscles, and even in the brain, as well as in the alimentary canal. We know they are multiplied by means of eggs, and also that their young are, in some instances, born alive, but we do not understand by what means they are transmitted from one animal to another, nor how they penetrate into the substance of organs in which they are developed. There is scarcely an animal that does not nourish many kinds of them, and those found in one species are rarely found in many others. This class is divided into two orders, one in which the intestinal canal floats free in the cavity of the abdomen, and therefore denominated caviatoria, the other is named parenchymata, because the animalcules of this order have neither abdomen nor intestine distinct from the neighboring parts, their digestive cavity consisting of ramified canals hollowed out in the substance of the body, and generally opening externally by suckers. To the first division belong the Philia Rae. They have a slender, filiform body. Several species are known, which live in the substance of the organs of many animals. One of these is the guinea worm. It lodges itself beneath the skin of man, and is very common in warm countries. Ascarides, which are found in the intestines of man, also belong to this division. One species, the lumbricus, sometimes attains to fifteen inches in length. To the second division, parenchymata, belongs the tapeworm, tenia. The body is terminated anteriorly by a small head, having two or four pits, and frequently one or more proboscis-like appendages. But the mouth is very indistinct, and the digestive apparatus is generally reduced to a double longitudinal vessel. 
the body is ordinarily flat very long and divided into a great many more or less distinct joints each segment or ring has one or two pores which communicate with the longitudinal vessels and contains a distinct ovary the body of this creature consists of a great number of these segments united together in a linear series the segments which immediately succeed to the head are very small and so fragile that it is rarely this part of the animal is procured in a perfect state they gradually however increase in size towards the middle of the body each segment of the tapeworm may be regarded as a distinct animal for it possesses the means of reproducing itself yet the alimentary tubes are common to them all those of each joint freely communicating with the nutritive canals of the adjoining segments the first joint of the tinea which may be called its head differs materially in structure from all the rest it is in fact converted into an apparatus by means of which the entire animal derives its nourishment this part when highly magnified is found to be somewhat of a square shape in the centre is seen the mouth surrounded with a circle of minute spines so disposed as to secure its retention in a position for imbibing the chyle in which it is immersed around this mouth are placed four suckers tapeworms infest all classes of animals and commonly inhabit the small intestine their presence in the alimentary canal generally causes debility and wasting of the body and often very serious disturbance the species which attacks man the solitary worm is very difficult to get rid of we also place in this division certain very singular animals which resemble a little bladder filled with water they grow in different parts of the bodies of animals and are called hydatids they are the cause of considerable disturbance and serious diseases infusoria polygastrica these animalcules can only be perceived by means of the microscope they are abundantly developed in water containing the remains of organic bodies until within a few years they were confounded with the infusoria rotatoria the structure of which is very different their body sometimes round sometimes long and flat is often covered with little ciliae and contains ordinarily a considerable number of cavities which seem to discharge the functions of so many stomachs the above figure will give an idea of the most common species of these creatures the movements of the polygastrica when seen under the microscope are exceedingly vivacious and although many of them inhabit a space not larger than the point of a needle they swim about with great activity avoiding each other as they pass in their rapid dance and evidently directing their motions with wonderful precision and accuracy the echinodermata or echinoderms from the greek echinus a hedgehog and derma skin are formed for crawling at the bottom of the sea and are ordinarily provided with a multitude of retractile appendages by means of which they attach themselves to bodies they touch in general the skin is covered with spines and their organization is more complicated than that of most zoophytes they often possess a kind of skeleton vessels for circulation special organs for respiration and a separate intestinal canal furnished with two openings the sea stars asteria belong to this division also the sea hedgehogs or sea eggs which have the appearance of balls covered with spines in some ports of the mediterranean they are used for food the acalepha or acalephans from the greek acaleph a nettle commonly called sea nettles on account of the irritation contact with them produces on the skin 
are of a gelatinous consistence. They always float on the sea, and are essentially organized for swimming. Their organization is very simple. Their internal organs consist almost exclusively of a stomach, hollowed in the substance of the body, from which arise different branched canals. The medusae belong to this class. The body is broad and more or less convex, resembling a disc, or the cap of a mushroom. The margin and center of the cap are furnished with tentacles, which probably serve them to seize small mollusks or zoophytes and convey them to the mouth. They swim by slowly contracting the margin of the cap, and thus expelling the water contained in its concavity. They are seldom seen on the surface except in calm weather. Many of these animals contribute to the phosphorescence of the sea, diffusing a whitish light. Class of Polypi under the name of polypi is included a great number of animals, possessing a cylindrical or oval body, with an opening at one of its extremities surrounded by long tentacles. The structure of polypi is very simple, and their faculties very limited. Most of them live fixed to other bodies by the posterior extremity, and all their movement consists in extending and contracting their tentacles, and drawing the anterior portion of the body into itself. They are multiplied in two ways. Sometimes they produce eggs, which detach themselves and are expelled, and their development is left to chance. At other times, buds spring from the surface of the body, which never separate, but become so many new polypi, similar to the parent. Hence result masses of various form in which an entire series of generations are aggregated and seem to possess a life in common just as if it were really a compound creature, provided with a single body, possessing a thousand mouths, and as many stomachs. In general, the digestive cavities of all these aggregated animals, living thus in society, do not open directly into each other, but commonly there are vascular communications between the individuals united in a single mass, and the alimentary matter digested by one may in this way be of advantage to all its neighbors. Frequently, the bodies of these little animalcules is composed entirely of a semi-transparent tissue of extreme delicacy. But in most of them, the inferior portion of the tegumentary sheath becomes much indurated, and even ossified, so as to acquire the hardness and appearance of stone. This solid envelope assumes various forms, and sometimes constitutes tubes, and sometimes merely cells. For a long time it was considered merely as the dwellings of the polyps which formed it, and is designated under the name of coral. Sometimes every polyp has a distinct coral, but ordinarily it is the portion common to an aggregated mass of polyps that possesses the characteristics of these bodies, the volume of which may become enormous, although each of the parts forming it is extremely small. It is in this way that polyps of only a few inches in length raise reefs and islands and seas bordering the tropics. When placed under circumstances favorable to their development, certain animals of this class multiply to such a degree as to cover chains of rocks or immense submarine banks, and form, with their stony corals, heaped one upon another, masses whose extent is constantly increasing by the birth of new animalcules, added to those already existing. The solid slough of remnant of each colony of polyps remains after the frail architects have perished, and serves as a base for the development of other polyps, 
until these living wreaths reached the surface of the water, where these animals cease to exist, and the soil formed by their remains ceases to rise. But the surface of these masses of corals, exposed to the action of the atmosphere, becomes the site of a new series of phenomena. Seeds, which are deposited by the winds, or borne thither by the waves, germinate, and the surface of these coral masses is in this way gradually clothed in a rich vegetation. And thus, what were but recently vast charnel houses of almost microscopic zoophytes are converted into habitable islands. In the Pacific Ocean there are innumerable reefs and islands which had no other origin. In general, they seem to be based on the crater of some extinct volcano, for they are almost always of a circular form, with a lake in the center communicating with the ocean by a single channel. Some are more than ten leagues in diameter. Almost all polyps inhabit the sea. Some, however, are found in fresh water. Most polyps secrete this stony matter, above mentioned, in the cells of which they are lodged, or around which they are grouped. The stony matter of a beautiful red color, employed as an ornament, called coral, is formed in this way. It is the stem found in the midst of an aggregation of certain polyps that serves to sustain and attach them to the earth. These little animals, only two or three lines in length, have at their free extremity eight tentacles, in the middle of which is the mouth. By their opposite extremity they are fixed in little cavities hollowed out in a kind of membrane or living bark, which is common to all, and into which they can entirely withdraw themselves. This common part is more or less branched, and in its center are found successive layers of very hard, stony matter, which is the coral. This coral is found plentifully in the Mediterranean, principally on the African coast, where it forms the object of an active fishery. Freshwater polyps, or hydrae, from the Greek uder, water, may be considered as the most simple type of this group. The body is a gelatinous tube, in which no particular organ is perceived. Nevertheless, they crawl and swim actively, by agitating their long tentacles to seize small animals that come within their reach, which they devour with great avidity. They seem to be sensible to the influence of light. Some of these polyps have been turned inside out, and yet the cavity thus formed, having the skin inside, performed the functions of the natural stomach. But what is most singular and astonishing is their great tenacity of life, which enables them to live even after they are cut into pieces, and each fragment afterwards becomes an entire and perfect hydra. When left free, the hydrae are found to select positions most exposed to the influence of light. Assembling at the surface of the ponds which they inhabit, or seeking that side of the glass in which they are confined, that is most strongly illuminated. That they are able to appreciate the presence of light is therefore indubitable. Yet, with what organs do they perceive it? We are driven to the supposition that, in this case, the sense of touch supplies to a certain extent the want of other senses, and that the hydrae are able to feel the light. When the hydra is watching for its prey, it remains expanded, its tentacles widely spread and perfectly motionless, waiting patiently till some of the countless beings which populate the stagnant waters if frequent 
are brought by accident in contact with them. No sooner does an animal touch one of the filaments than its course is arrested, as if by magic. It appears instantly fixed to the almost invisible thread, and in spite of its utmost efforts is unable to escape. The tentacle then slowly contracts and others are brought in contact with the struggling prey, which thus seized is gradually dragged towards the orifice of the mouth that opens to receive it and slowly forced into the interior of the stomach. Jones Sponges live in the sea attached to rocks. They bear some analogy to the common mass in which certain polyps are lodged, but we find none of these animals on them. Their surface is perforated by an immense number of holes which communicate with canals running through their substance in every direction, and through which currents of water are continually passing. Sponges are found in a variety of forms. Some are like horns, spheres, cups, fans, shrubs, etc. Some are studded with fine stony needles. Others are sustained internally by flexible fibers, arranged so as to form tubes and little cells. Common sponge, of which we make so much use, has a structure of the latter description. It constitutes large brown masses, and is found in the Mediterranean. Geographical Distribution of Animals To form a general idea of the animal kingdom, it is not enough to know the principal phenomena by which life is manifest in animate creatures, and to have studied the structure of their bodies and the mechanism of their functions. We must also look at the manner in which animals are distributed over the face of the earth, and endeavor to appreciate the influence which the different circumstances in which they are placed may exercise over them. When we look at the manner of distribution of animals on the globe, we are at first struck with the difference of the media they inhabit. Some, as everybody knows, always live under water, and quickly die when withdrawn from it. Others can only exist in the air and almost immediately perish when submerged. Some, in fact, are destined to inhabit the waters and others to live upon the land, and when we compare aquatic and terrestrial animals in their physiological and anatomical relations, we find, at least in part, the causes of the differences in their mode of existence. In studying respiration, we pointed out the constant relation between the intensity of this function and vital energy. Animals consume in a given time a quantity of oxygen, increasing in proportion to the activity of their motions and rapidity of their nutrition. Now they can obtain this oxygen only from the fluids surrounding them. In a gallon of air there are about 84 cubic inches of this vivifying principle, while in a gallon of water we ordinarily find only about five cubic inches. It is evident, then, that the degree of activity in the respiratory function, indispensable to the exercise of the faculties belonging to superior animals, must be of more easy attainment in air than in water, and on account of this difference alone, the creatures highest in the animal series cannot dwell in water. We comprehend, indeed, that an animal which, in order to exist, must appropriate a considerable quantity of oxygen every instant, does not find it in sufficient quantity when plunged into water, and therefore perishes of asphyxia. But at first sight it is not so easy to explain why an aquatic animal cannot continue to live when taken from the water and placed in the air, 
for then we supply it with a fluid richer in oxygen than that, the vivifying action of which was sufficient for all its wants. There are, however, various circumstances which to a certain degree explain this phenomenon. Physics teach us that a body carefully weighed in air and in water is lighter in the last than in the first, and that to sustain it in equilibrium there is then only required a weight equal to its weight in air, less that of the bulk of water it displaces. Hence it follows that animals whose tissues are too soft to sustain themselves in air, and are compressed to such an extent as to become unfit to perform their functions in the organism, can nevertheless live very well in water, where these same tissues, being not much more dense than the surrounding fluid, are required to possess only a feeble power of resistance, to preserve their forms, and to prevent the several parts of the body from falling together on each other. This consideration alone is sufficient to show us why gelatinous animals, such as infusoriae or medusae, are necessarily inhabitants of the water. For when we observe one of these delicate creatures, while still in this fluid, we perceive that all the parts, even the most slender tissues, are sustained in their proper position and float easily in the surrounding medium. But the moment they are withdrawn, their body is almost entirely effaced, offering to the eye only a confused and shapeless mass. The influence of the density of the surrounding medium upon the mechanical play of these instruments of life is also felt in animals of a more perfect structure, in which, however, respiration is still carried on by means of ramified membranous appendages resembling diminutive shrub branches or plumes. For example, in annelidans, or even in fishes, the bronchiae, or gills, are composed of flexible filaments, which easily sustain themselves in water, and therefore permit the respirable fluid to reach and renew itself at all points of their surface. But in air these same membranous filaments are in a measure effaced by their own weight, falling one on another, and in this way exclude the oxygen from the greater part of the respiratory apparatus. It results that this function is then embarrassed, and the animal may die of asphyxia in the air, although it found in water all it required for free respiration. To convince ourselves of the importance of these variations in the physical state of organs placed in air or in water, it is only necessary to be reminded of what is seen in dissecting rooms. An anatomist, desirous of studying the structure of a very delicate part, would succeed very indifferently if he made his dissection in air. But by placing the subject of investigation in water, he much more easily succeeds in distinguishing all the parts, because these parts, sustained in a measure by this liquid, then preserve their natural relations, just as if they were of a consistent and stiffer tissue. Another circumstance which influences the possibility of living in air or in water is the evaporation which always takes place from the surface of organized bodies placed in the air, but which cannot take place in water. A certain degree of desiccation causes all organic tissues to lose their distinguishing physical properties, and we find that losses by evaporation always produce death in animals when they exceed certain limits. It follows that creatures whose organization is not calculated to preserve them against the injurious effects of evaporation can only live in water and quickly perish in air. 
Now the animal economy is equal to this exigence only when it possesses a very complicated structure. In fact, if an active respiration be requisite, the respiratory surface must be deeply lodged in some internal cavity, where the air can be renewed only in proportion as it is required for the support of life. To secure this renovation, the respiratory apparatus must be furnished with proper motive organs. To prevent the desiccation or drying of any portion of the surface of the body, the diffusion of the liquids to the different parts of the body must be easily carried on, and there must be an active circulation, or the surface must be invested by a tunic or covering that is scarcely permeable. This is so true that even in fishes, in which the circulation is very complete, although slowly carried on, and the capillary network not very dense, death speedily takes place in consequence of desiccation of a part of the body, of the posterior portion, for example, even when this portion alone is exposed to the air, while the rest of the animal remains under water. We may add, too, that in water, feeding may be effected with less perfect instruments of prehension than in air, where the transportation of the food required by the animal is more difficult. In all its most essential relations, life is, in a manner, more easily maintained in the mists of the waters than on the surface of the earth. In the atmosphere it demands more perfect and more complicated physiological instruments. The water is the natural element of animals lowest in the zoological series, and if the productions of the creation have succeeded each other in the same order as the transitory states through which every animal passes during the period of its development, we may conclude that animate creatures first appeared in the mists of the waters, a conclusion in accordance with the observation of geologists and the text of the scriptures. In this manner, the physiologist can account for the division of animals between the two geological elements of the globe, the water and earth. But these fundamental differences are not the only ones observed in the geographical distribution of animate creatures. If a naturalist, familiar with the fauna of his own country, visit distant regions, he sees, as he advances, that the land becomes inhabited by animals new to his eyes. Then these species disappear, and they are turned to give place to species equally unknown. If after leaving France he land in the south of Africa, he will find there only a small number of animals similar to those he saw in Europe, and he will remark especially the elephant with big ears, the hippopotamus, the rhinoceros with two horns, the giraffe, innumerable herds of antelopes, the zebra, the cape buffalo, the widened base of whose horns cover the front, the black-maned lion, the chimpanzee, which of all animals most resembles man, the cynocephalus, or dog-faced monkey, vultures of particular species, a multitude of birds of brilliant plumage, strangers to Europe, insects also different from those of the north, for example the fatal termite, which lives in numerous societies and builds in common its habitation of earth, which is very curious in its arrangement and of considerable height. If our zoologist leave the Cape of Good Hope and penetrate into the interior of the great island of Madagascar, he will there find a different fauna. He will see none of the large quadrupeds he met in Africa. In place of the family of monkeys, he will find other mammals equally well formed for climbing trees, 
but more resembling the canaria, designated by naturalists under the name of machis. He will meet the eye-eye, or sloth, a most singular animal, which appears to be a sort of object of veneration among the inhabitants, and partakes of the nature of both monkey and squirrel. Tenrex, a kind of hedgehog, small insectivorous mammals, which have spiny backs like hedgehogs, but do not roll themselves in a ball. The chameleon with forked nose, and many curious reptiles not found elsewhere, as well as insects not less characteristic of that region. Still pursuing his route and arriving in India, our traveller sees an elephant different from that of Africa, oxen, bears, rhinoceros, antelopes, stags, different from those of Africa and Europe, the orangutan, and a multitude of other monkeys peculiar to those countries, the royal tiger, the argus, the peacock, pheasants, and an almost innumerable host of birds, reptiles, and insects, unknown elsewhere. If he now visit New Holland, all will be there again new to him, and the aspect of this fauna will appear to him still more strange than the various zoological populations he has passed in review. He will no longer meet with species analogous to our oxen, horses, bears, and large carnaria. Large-sized quadrupeds are almost entirely wanting. He will find kangaroos, flying phalangers, and the ornithorhynchus. Finally, if our traveller, to get back to his own country, traverses the vast continent of America, he will discover a fauna analogous to that of the old world, but composed almost entirely of different species. He will there see monkeys with a prehensile tail, large carnaria similar to our lions and tigers, bisons, llamas, armadillos, birds, reptiles, and insects, equally remarkable and equally new to him. Differences not less great in the species of animals peculiar to different regions of the globe are observed when instead of confining our observations to the inhabitants of the land, we examine the myriads of animated creatures that dwell in the mist of the waters. Passing from the coasts of Europe to the Indian Ocean, and from the latter into the American seas, we meet with fishes, mollusks, crustaceans, and zoophytes, peculiar to each of these regions. This limitation or colonization of species, whether aquatic or terrestrial, is so marked that a slightly experienced naturalist cannot mistake, even at first sight, the original localities of zoological collections that may have been gathered in one or the other of the great geographical divisions of the globe and submitted to his examination. The fauna of each of these divisions is peculiar to it and may be easily characterized by the presence of certain more or less remarkable species. Naturalists have formed many theories to account for this mode of distribution of animals over the surface of the globe. But in the present state of science, it is impossible to give a satisfactory explanation without admitting that, in the beginning, the different species had their origin in the different regions where they are found, and that by degrees they afterwards spread afar and occupied a more or less considerable portion of the surface of the earth. In short, the presence of a particular animal within narrow limits on the earth necessarily supposes when this animal is found nowhere else, that it had its origin on this spot, or that it immigrated there, from a more or less remote region, 
and that subsequently it was entirely destroyed where its race commenced, that is, exactly at the place where, according to every probability, all circumstances most favorable to its existence were found in combination. There is nothing strongly in favor of this last hypothesis, and it is repugnant to common sense to believe that in the beginning the same country saw the birth of the horse, the giraffe, bison, and kangaroo, for instance, but that these animals left it afterwards, without leaving any trace of their passage, to colonize, one on the steppes of Central Asia, another in the interior of Africa, a third in the New World, and another again in the great islands of Australia. It is much more natural to suppose that every species was placed, from the beginning, by the author of all things, in the region where it was destined permanently to live, and that by extending from a certain number of these distinct centers of creation, different animals have spread throughout those portions of the globe, now forming the domain of each kind. In the present condition of the earth, it is impossible to recognize all those zoological centers, for we can conceive the possibility of exchanges, so multiplied between two regions, the fauna of which were primitively distinct, that they present species common to both, and nothing now points out to the eyes of the naturalist their original separation. But when a country is inhabited by a considerable number of species which are not seen elsewhere, even where local circumstances are most similar, we are warranted in the supposition that this region was the theatre of a peculiar zoological creation, and we must regard it as a distinct region. What the naturalist should ask is not how different portions of the earth have come now to be inhabited by different species, but how animals could be so far extended over the surface of the globe, and how nature placed variable limits to this dissemination according to species. The latter question especially presents itself to the mind when we consider the unequal extent now occupied by this or that group of animated creatures. For example, the orangutan is confined to the island of Borneo and the neighboring lands, the musk-ox is colonized in the most northern part of America, and the llama in the elevated regions of Peru and Chile, while the wild duck is seen everywhere, from Lapland to the Cape of Good Hope, and from the United States to China and Japan. The circumstances which favor the dissemination of species are of two kinds. The one pertains to the animal itself, and the other is foreign to it. Among the first is the development of the locomotive power, all things being equal in other respects. The species which live attached to the earth, or which possess only imperfect instruments of locomotion, occupy a very limited extent of the earth's surface, compared to those species whose moving powers are rapid and energetic. Among terrestrial animals, birds present us with most examples of cosmopolite species, and among aquatic animals, the cetaceans and fishes. Reptiles, on the contrary, are restricted to narrow limits, and the same is true of most mollusks and crustaceans. The instinct possessed by certain animals to change their climate periodically also contributes to the dissemination of species, and this instinct exists in a great number of these creatures. Among the circumstances foreign to the animal, and in a measure accidental, we place first the influence of man, and to illustrate this point a few examples will suffice. 
The horse is originally from the steppes of Central Asia, and at the time of the discovery of America, no animal of this species existed in the New World. The Spaniards carried it with them there not more than three centuries back, and now, not only do the inhabitants of this vast continent, from Hudson's Bay to Terra del Fuego, possess horses in abundance, but these animals have become wild, and are found in almost countless herds. The same is true of the domestic ox, carried from the old to the new world. They have multiplied there to such an extent that in some parts of South America they are actively hunted for their hides only for the manufacture of leather. The dog has been everywhere the companion of man, and we could instance a great many animals that have become cosmopolite by following us. The rat, which appears to be originally from America, overran Europe in the Middle Ages, and is now met with even on the islands of Oceanica. In some cases animals have been able to break through natural barriers, seemingly insurmountable, and spread themselves over a more or less considerable portion of the surface of the globe, by the assistance of circumstances, whose importance at first sight seems very trifling, such as the movement of a fragment of ice or wood, often carried to considerable distances by currents. Nothing is more common than to meet at sea, hundreds of miles from land, fucus floating on the surface of the water and serving as a resting place for small crustaceans, incapable of transporting themselves by swimming, far from the shores where they were born. The great maritime current, the Gulf Stream, commencing in the Gulf of Mexico, coasts North America to Newfoundland, then directs its course to Iceland, Ireland, and returns towards the Azores, often bearing to the coasts of Europe trunks of trees which were conveyed by the waters of the Mississippi, from the most interior parts of the New World to the sea. It frequently happens that these masses of wood are perforated by the larvae of insects, and they may afford attachment to the eggs of mollusks and of fishes, etc. Finally, even birds contribute to the dispersion of living creatures over the surface of the globe, and that too in a most singular manner. Frequently, they do not digest the eggs they swallow, but evacuating them at places far from where they were picked up, carry to great distances the germs of races unknown till then in the countries where they were deposited. Notwithstanding all these means of transportation and other circumstances favoring the dissemination of species, there are very few animals that are really cosmopolites, and most of these creatures being colonized within limited regions. That such should be the case we can comprehend, if we study the circumstances which may oppose their progress. But this study is far from furnishing us a satisfactory explanation of all cases of limited circumscription of a species, and it is often impossible to divine why certain animals remain restricted to a locality when nothing seems to oppose their propagation in neighboring situations. Whatever may be the reason, the obstacles to the geographical distribution of species are sometimes mechanical and at others physiological. Among the first are seas and chains of lofty mountains. To terrestrial animals, seas of much extent are in general an impassable barrier, and we perceive, all things being equal, the mixture of two distinct faunae is always most intimate in proportion as the regions to which they belong are, geographically, most approximated or in communication with each other by intermediate lands. 
the atlantic ocean prevents species peculiar to tropical america from extending to africa europe or asia and the fauna of the new world is entirely distinct from that of the old continent except in the highest latitudes towards the north pole but there the land of the two continents is approximated america being separated from asia only by bering straits and is connected to europe by greenland and iceland on this account zoological exchanges can be more easily effected and we find there species common to both worlds for example the white bear the reindeer the castor the ermine the bald eagle etc chains of lofty mountains also constitute natural barriers which arrest the dispersion of species and prevent the admixture of faunae proper to neighboring zoological regions for instance the opposite declivities of the cordillera of the andes are inhabited by species which are for the most part different the insects of the brazilian side for example are almost all distinct from those found in peru and new grenada the dispersion of marine animals living near coasts is prevented in the same manner by the geographical configuration of the earth but here it is sometimes a continuation of a long chain of land and sometimes a vast extent of open sea which opposes the dissemination of species thus most animals of the mediterranean are also found in the european portion of the atlantic but they do not extend to the seas of india from which the mediterranean is separated by the isthmus of suez nor can they traverse the ocean to gain the shores of the new world the physiological circumstances which tend to limit the different faunae are more numerous and without doubt the first in consideration is the unequal temperature of different regions of the earth there are species which can bear an intense cold and tropical heat equally well man and the dog for example but there are others which in this respect are less favored by nature and which do not flourish or even cannot exist except under the influence of a determined temperature for instance monkeys which thrive in tropical regions almost always die of phthisis when exposed to the cold and humidity of our climate while the reindeer formed to support the rigors of the long and severe winter of lapland suffers from the warmth of st petersburg and generally succumbs to the influence of a temperate climate hence it is that in a great number of cases the difference of climate is alone sufficient to arrest species in their march from high latitudes towards the equator or from the equatorial regions towards the poles the influence of temperature on the animal economy also explains why certain species remain within a chain of mountains without being able to extend beyond it to analogous localities we know in fact that temperature decreases in proportion to the elevation of the land and consequently animals that live at considerable heights cannot descend on to the low plains to reach other mountains without traversing countries in which the temperature is much higher than that of their ordinary dwelling the llama for example abounds on the pastures of peru and chile situated at a height of from twelve to fifteen thousand feet above the level of the sea extending southwards to the extremity of patagonia but is not seen either in brazil or mexico because it cannot reach those countries without descending to regions too warm for its constitution the nature of the vegetation and of the previously existing fauna in a region of the globe 
also exerts an influence on its invasion by exotic species. Thus the dispersion of the silkworm is limited by the disappearance of the mulberry, beyond a certain degree of latitude. The cochineal cannot spread beyond the region in which the cactus grows, and the large canaria, except those that live on fishes, cannot exist in the polar regions, where vegetable productions are too poor to nourish any considerable number of herbivorous quadrupeds. It would be easy to multiply examples of these necessary relations between the existence of an animal species in a particular place and the existence of certain climatic, phytological, or zoological conditions. But our limits do not permit these details, and the considerations we have already presented appear to be sufficient to give an idea of the manner in which nature has effected the dissemination of animal species on different parts of the earth's surface. And to attain the end we propose to ourselves in commencing the subject, it only remains for us to glance at the results brought about by the different circumstances we have just mentioned, that is, the present state of the geographical distribution of animated creatures. When we compare with each other the different regions of the globe, in respect to their zoological population, we are at first struck by the extreme inequality remarked in the number of species. In one country we find a great diversity in the form and structure of the animals composing its fauna, while in another place there is a great uniformity in this respect, and it is easy to perceive a certain relation existing between the different degrees of zoological richness and the more or less considerable elevation of temperature. In fact, the number of species, both marine and terrestrial, augments in general as we descend from the poles towards the equator. The most remote lands of the polar regions offer little to the observation of the traveler but some insects, and in the glacial seas the fishes and mollusks are but little varied. In temperate climates the fauna becomes more numerous in species. But it is in the tropical regions that nature has displayed the greatest prodigality in this respect, and the zoologist cannot behold without astonishment the endless diversity of animals that he there finds assembled. It is also remarked that there is a singular coincidence between the elevation of temperature in different zoological regions and the degree of organic perfection of the animals which inhabit them. It is in the warmest climates that those animals live that most nearly resemble man, and also those in the great zoological divisions which possess the most complicated organization and the most developed faculties, while in the polar regions we meet with creatures occupying a low rank in the zoological series. Monkeys, for example, are confined to the warm parts of the two continents. The same is true of parrots among birds, of crocodiles and tortoises among reptiles, and of land-crabs among crustaceans, all of them the most perfect animals of their respective classes. It is also in warm countries that we find animals the most remarkable for the beauty of their colors, their size, and the strangeness of their forms. Indeed, there seems to exist a certain relation between the climate and the tendency of nature to produce this or that animal form. We observe a very great resemblance between most animals inhabiting the extreme northern and southern regions, the faunae of the temperate regions of Europe, Asia, and North America, are very analogous in their general aspect, and in the tropical regions of the two worlds similar forms predominate. 
It is not identical species that we meet in distinct and nearly isothermal regions, but species more or less approximating to each other, which seem to be the representatives of one and the same type. For example, the monkeys of India and of Central Africa are represented in tropical America by other monkeys, easily distinguishable from the first. The lion-tiger and panther of the old continent correspond to the cougar-jaguar and ounce of the new world. The mountains of Europe, Asia, and North America nourish bears of distinct species, but differing very little from each other. Seals abound especially in the neighborhood of the polar circles, and if we seek the proofs of this tendency, not among the highest classes of the animal kingdom, but among the inferior creatures, they will be found not less evident. Crayfishes, for example, appear to be confined to the temperate regions of the globe, and are found throughout Europe, in a species common to European streams. In the south of Russia there is a different species. In North America there are two species, distinct from the preceding. In Chile there is a fourth species. In the south of New Holland a fifth. In Madagascar a sixth. And at the Cape of Good Hope a seventh. A comparison of the faunae particular to the different zoological regions of the globe leads to other results for which it is more difficult to account. When we examine successively the assemblage of species inhabiting Asia, Africa, and America, we remark that the fauna of the New World is characterized by inferiority, a fact which did not escape the celebrated buffin. In a word, there are no mammals existing now in the New World as large as those of the old. It is true we find in America a considerable number of monkeys, but among them there is none equal to the orangutan or chimpanzee. The rodentia and edentata abound most, which of all ordinary mammals are the least intelligent. Finally, in America we find opossums, animals belonging to an inferior type of ordinary mammals, which have no representative, neither in Europe nor Asia nor Africa. If we pass from the New World to the still newer region of Australia, we shall see there a fauna whose inferiority is still more decided, for there the class of mammals is scarcely represented by the marsupials and monotremata. As to the limitation of the different zoological regions into which the globe is divided, and the composition of the faunae proper to each, we cannot treat without exceeding our limits, but we regret this less because in the present state of science these questions are far from being settled. Here we terminate our zoological studies, for the object we proposed to ourselves was not a particular description of each animal, nor an enumeration of those characters which would enable us to recognize or group them methodically. We were merely desirous of giving some notion of the nature and properties of these creatures to sketch rapidly the prominent traits of their history and furnish our young readers the general knowledge most useful to all and indispensable to those who wish to study more profoundly this branch of the sciences of observation. End of Lesson 9